Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great to see you. A bit sad to see you with mask on, um, but thank you for doing that. Um, hope you had a restful break if you were able to, to rest or have a break. Um, Dee and I got COVID just before Christmas, which was fun. I'm sure most of you got similar stories uh, to tell about that, but I hope um, despite all that's going on, you were able to rest, see friends, see family, and have a, just a, a good start or a, a good end to the year and a good start to this one. Uh, as Sarah said, we are kicking off a brand new sermon series today called Living Hope, and we're going to be looking at how we can rediscover our identity and purpose uh, through the letter of one Peter. Uh, last autumn, if you remember, uh, before Christmas, we looked at a series uh, called I Am, the Seven Sayings of Jesus, where we looked at the seven sayings in John of who Jesus said he was. And so this time, this series, we're going to start looking at who we are. And we're going to use 1 Peter as our guide as we explore the implications for, uh, because of what Jesus is, what that means for us, our identity, what we're called to in terms of our purpose, and this living hope that we carry as his followers. How we've been given this new identity, adopted into a new family, and given this new living hope. Now we are all uh, probably very frustrated uh, that this kind of unique moment, these couple of years are still going on. Uh, we're just desperate for it to be over, or at least to kind of realise that this is life now and just kind of not have to read the news every week and think about what the new restrictions or no restrictions might be. Uh, and as we kind of go through this moment where we're all just so desperate for it to, to end or for life to kind of go back to some level of normal, I do think this series can be really important and foundational for us. In light of who Jesus is and what he's done, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? And how do we live in this world that feels increasingly torn apart by things outside of our control, whether that's COVID or political unrest or whatever it might be? How do we live in such a way that loves the place, loves the city that we live, loves East London, whilst at the same time being separate, being distinct from it? And the first letter of Peter is just a brilliant letter to help us answer some of those questions. So Peter is writing to this, uh, these Christians, many uh, churches around an area called Asia Minor, which is now uh, largely a part of modern-day Turkey. And he's encouraging them to stand firm in their faith, uh, not in the midst of persecution, in the way that we think about persecution or the, how the church were persecuted throughout the New Testament. It wasn't kind of persecution in that sense or extreme persecution. It was more uh, social stigma or exclusion that they were facing because of their faith, the way they were living, and their refusal to follow the cultural norms and religious norms of the areas in which they lived. It kind of sounds similar in some ways to us. And so one of Peter's main concerns in this letter is why and how followers of Jesus should be distinct in how they live and an encouragement to keep on living like that. And the word that Peter uses to define this way of living, this distinct way of living, is the word holiness, which is what we are looking at today. So if you want to open your Bibles up, if you have them, um, the words will be on the screen. We're going to look at uh, 1 Peter Chapter 1, I'm going to read quite a large part of the, the chapter, and Sarah's going to look at the first part next week. I'm looking at the second part today. Don't ask me why we're doing it that way. We just are. Uh, but we'll be focusing particularly on verses 10 and 15, and they'll be in bold on the screen um, for you so you know where we're, uh, where we're particularly going to be looking at. So let's read it. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, 
who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to, had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that, the proven, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now holiness is one of these terms, I think, or at least it has been in my experience, that... Um, can be both kind of difficult to describe, but also loaded with uh, baggage and assumptions, either from our own experiences or through how holiness has been framed either through church or through popular culture. If someone is described as holy today in our world, it would usually be said in jest as someone who's maybe condescending or thinks they're better than everyone else, or someone who's nice but naive, think Ned Flanders or, or Raph. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It's just it's the new year, new year. Um, but those perceptions and definitions, they either are completely wrong, they're completely false, or they don't quite match up to what we uh, see as the biblical vision for holiness. So what is it? What does it mean to be holy? Well, the most helpful definition and way of thinking about this, about what holiness means, is through this idea of being set apart or distinctive for a specific purpose. And that's quite a kind of vanilla description, and we still need to do a bit of work to figure out exactly what, um, or what the entirety of the meaning means as we read it in Scripture. But I think this is a really, foundation, a really good foundation, a good place to start when we think about holiness. It's to be set apart, to be distinct. And what's interesting about this word in Scripture is that it's not just used to describe God or people. It's used to describe food, objects, ground. Think uh, Moses in the burning bush where God says to him, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground and even time. In fact, the first use of the word holy in scripture is in Genesis 2 uh, for the seventh day in creation, for the Sabbath day. It says that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God made that day holy because it was set apart. It was distinct from the other six days, hence it being holy. And this idea of being set apart or distinct is key to how we understand both the role of Israel throughout the Old Testament and, as Peter is emphasising in this letter, the role of the church in the New Testament and for us as followers of Jesus today. But before we get into that, before we look at what this means for us now, I do want to look at this idea of God being holy. What does it mean in verse 16 where he says, or where Peter quotes a passage, I am holy? 
Now, to find that, we obviously need to go back into the Old Testament where this quote, where this reference comes from. But uh, before we do that, I just want to uh, talk about the most, probably the most famous uh, passage in the Old Testament that mentions God's holiness, and it's from Isaiah 6. The prophet Isaiah has this vision of being in the presence of God, being in the temple, who is seated on a throne. And he saw seraphim, these, these heavenly creatures, calling to one another, singing out these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. In fact, we sang it out earlier today. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, what's used for the qualifier in this passage for God's holiness is that the earth is full of his glory. In fact, throughout the Psalms, when God is described as holy, it's used or it's paired with words like beauty or majestic or awesome or wonder. God is holy because he is completely set apart from all other created beings as the creator and author of life and of all creation. And this idea of God's holiness is further explored throughout the stories of the temple. And it becomes a key part of the purpose of Israel and uh, that we read in the Old Testament. So the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt, his majestic, powerful, awe-inspiring presence. And the purpose for the temple, the reason why that was the place for God's presence to dwell, was to signify the purpose of Israel. That they too are to be set apart, distinctive to the world around them. They were to be assigned to the nations that God is the all-powerful, loving creator of the whole cosmos and he will restore all of humanity from the consequences of humanity's failure and the fall and that we all created in his image for relationship with him. Israel was set apart, distinct, holy, to reveal the glory, the set-apartness, the distinctiveness, the holiness of God. Israel was, was to be the way that God would restore all of humanity and renew the world. And the room in, which the temp, in the temple where God actually dwelt was called, unsurprisingly, the Holy of Holies. And you couldn't just kind of waltz up to the Holy of Holies, into God's presence. It was too powerful, too majestic, too glorious for us as fallen, sinful humans. And so God, through Moses, gave the Israelites guidance on how they were to enter God's presence in a way that was appropriate for what they were doing which is where this quote comes from that we read in 1 Peter from the Old Testament uh, in verse 16, and it's incredibly important for us. Uh, and it's found in the book of Leviticus. Happy New Year, let's look at Leviticus. Um, no, I joke, but uh, this is really important to help us, and actually quite cool when we kind of really grapple with some of these uh, difficult uh, books and, and passages. It's really key to understand what uh, Scripture is saying to us about holiness and the implications for us. Now, if we look at how Leviticus is structured, and credit to uh, Tim Mackey, the theologian, and uh, the Bible Project, which if you haven't heard, you should definitely check out. It's really, really helpful in understanding Scripture. If you put the next slide up, Andy. Um, uh, the book of Leviticus is, is split into three different parts. Ritual, instructions for priests, who were the representatives of the people of Israel, and purity. Um, and this, this phrase... Uh, be holy because I am holy, put the next slide up, is used twice in Leviticus in the sections on purity laws. So if you see how it's structured, you've got um, these three different parts that are structured in that really kind of beautiful way, uh, starting and ending with the ritual feast, then the priests ordained and priest qualifications uh, near the end, and then ritual purity with the Day of Atonement right in the middle of the book. So these uh, passages, this, this quote, uh, be holy because I am holy, is found twice in Leviticus and it's found in the parts on purity, the purity laws in chapter 11 and chapter 19. So 
let's just delve into that a little bit. What does ritual purity mean? Well, because God's holiness is centered around him being the life-giving creator of the whole world, the whole universe, in order for the Israelites um, to be near God's presence or in God's presence, they couldn't touch anything associated with death or decay, the antithesis for who God is. It wasn't sinful to be ritually impure. It just meant that you had to perform certain rituals, certain instructions before you entered into God's presence to become ritually pure or clean is the language that is used in Leviticus. So ritual purity is all to do with the association with life or death. And then the second section, the uh, moral purity, uh, and it, uh, all um, uh, works around three key areas. And that's care for the poor, instructions on how to care for the poor and our relationships with one another, sexual integrity and justice all of which gave the Israelites this clear distinction in how they were to live compared with the nations around them. They were called to live differently, to be set apart, to be holy. This is the context that Peter is quoting from, that this call to be holy is linked to the possibility of being in or near God's presence and living lives that are distinct and set apart. Now, if you uh, know the story of the Old Testament, uh, you'll know that the Israelites don't do a great job at fulfilling these instructions or living in such a way that does display God's glory to the nations. And because of their rebellion and pride, God, God's presence leaves the temple and they are scattered and exiled. And so what happened? What happens to God's presence? How can anyone be near God, let alone have a relationship with God, if humanity's propensity to sin and pride keeps getting in the way? What happened to God's plan to renew and restore creation? Everyone still with me? Well done. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Meh. Um, So uh, the key comes by looking back at Isaiah chapter 6. If we read the rest of the vision that Isaiah had, uh, we read that after the cherubim call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. It says that at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's just pause there. The reason Isaiah is terrified is because in this vision, he has entered God's presence without going through the proper instructions to become ritually pure, and he assumes the worst. Priests have died going into God's presence improperly, and so Isaiah assumes he is destined for the same fate. And here's how the vision continues. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Unexpectedly, the holiness and purity of the coal is transferred to Isaiah. Isaiah would have known that touching anything to do with death or decay made you ritually impure or unclean. But now we have something that is holy and pure, touching him, making him not just ritually, ritually pure, but his guilt and his sin is completely taken away. And this, for Isaiah, this was a brand new concept and it had huge implications. But this is just a vision, just a foreshadowing of something greater to come. And Peter actually references this in the passage we read in verse 10, that the prophets, including Isaiah, spoke about the grace that was to come through Jesus. This is what Isaiah saw, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would fulfill, and that he was the fulfillment of this vision, that Jesus, through his life, his death, and the resurrection, 
that which is unclean and impure can become clean and pure, not through ritual or willpower, but through the grace of God given to us freely through Jesus. And we see signs of this throughout uh, the Gospels in Jesus' life of the fulfillment of this vision. Rather than shun the sick or the leper or even the dead, he would touch them. Something that should have made him ritually impure, and which is why so many of the particular Pharisees didn't like Jesus, because he, he wasn't following the proper instructions that they would have stuck to. But instead of Jesus uh, becoming unclean or impure, his life and his power is given over to heal, restore, and even raise the dead. That, this, he was the fulfillment of this vision we read about in Isaiah. And it's not just something we can read about, we can experience for ourselves as well. What he did then, he can do for us today. And God's plan to restore and renew creation continued through Jesus' new kingdom. And so Peter's call to holiness is not to follow a set of rules as if that was what holiness meant, so that God will accept you or love you so you can get to go to heaven. Instead, it's to respond to what Jesus has done for us. His life becomes ours as we experience his mercy, his forgiveness, and his love. And in light of the hope that we have that he will return to finish what he started and renew all things and bring his kingdom completely and finally, we are to live as citizens of that kingdom here and now, set apart, distinct, holy. Now the purpose of Israel to be set apart, to be distinctive to the world around them as a sign that God is the all-powerful creator of the world and that all of humanity was created in his image for relationship with him, that purpose now falls to the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women. Followers of Jesus are to be set apart to carry his presence and reveal the glory, the holiness of God to the world through the way in which we live. N.T. Wright put it like this. God will put all things right at the last. God has, as a past event, launched this project in raising Jesus from the dead. And in the present, God puts humans right so that they can be part of his putting right project for the world. So what does Peter have to say on how we can live out this putting right project? What does he have to say about holiness for us today? Well, he calls us to a life of obedience. His encouragement is to live as obedient children, not conforming to the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance. Now, a few things to say before we get into what that might mean for us. Uh, Firstly, I want us to look at this phrase, uh, evil desires. Now, the Greek word that's translated uh, in the NIV is uh, this word epimetheia, or something like that. Um, I can't quite pronounce it. But the translation doesn't quite uh, articulate the meaning of the word because of the inclusion of the word evil. This suggests a whole load of things that I think can become unhelpful. We might uh, think of things that we have never done or would never do and therefore assume that this may not be irrelevant, uh, irrelevant to us. Uh, but the ESV translation actually translates this word slightly better. It doesn't use the word evil at all use it and uses passion instead, which is a way more helpful translation for us. The word means uh, disordered desires or disordered passions that could both be good or evil that mean too much to you, where you place too much of your hope, where you place too much of your will. Peter is saying that there is this temptation in all of us to conform or submit ourselves completely to our desire or our passion, whatever that might be. But instead, Peter is calling us to obedience. Now, obedience might be a kind of tricky word for us 
um, something we may feel a little bit uncomfortable with. We want to exercise our own will through satisfying our desires and passions. We want to be the captain of our ship and master of our fate. But what scripture tells us and the church has said for hundreds of years is that our desire and our will is unreliable. Without help, there is no way of telling which of our desires uh, do us good and do those around us good and which will do harm. And there is this, um, I guess, illusion that our culture carries that in order to be fully human, we must be completely free, no constraints to follow all of our will, uh, all of our passions, all of our desires. The philosopher Bin Chul Han calls 21st century people entrepreneurs of themselves. And if you look for that kind of message, this idea that we focus in on ourselves, on what we want, on our desires, on our passions, you'll see this this messaging played out everywhere in our culture, whether that's in marketing or in social media or in how our politics plays itself out. But the problem is the world is full of the consequences of humanity giving into desire, giving into passion for power or for sex or for success or money or to be right or for pleasure or for comfort. They have become the ultimate drivers for humanity. No wonder the moral law in Leviticus focused on how we should care for the poor, justice, and sexual integrity. Scripture tells us that the way to be free is not to have a lack of constraint, but instead to live with the right constraints. I read an amazing testimony recently from the writer called Paul Kingsworth. He has this pretty dramatic story um, it kind of started as a child, he remembered going into his local church and there was a guest book by the door and he would just write uh, profanity. In fact, he wasn't just profanities, he'd write messages from Satan as a joke for, with his friends. Uh, no one seemed to notice, so he kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it until someone finally did, they tipexed it out and removed the pen. Um, so we're not going to get a guest book at Coburn Street, that's, that's for sure. Um, and he, he was an atheist, but he felt uncomfortable with his teenage atheism uh, both because of the, I guess, the grandeur of nature, he kind of really resonated or felt I guess, a sense of uh, spirituality when he was in nature, uh, but also uh, because of, in his words, every culture that endures has a spiritual core. And so he begins his own spiritual journey or began his own spiritual journey. And in, in his search, he explored pantheism, he explored Buddhism, and finally he became a priest in the occult. And then he began having dreams of Jesus. He writes how he would bump into Christians everywhere and even his wife, while he was still this priest in the occult, said to him, I've got this feeling you're going to become a Christian, which is mad. It came to a head when he was about to perform a local ritual in his temple, at a, in his local temple and he felt just really dizzy, really sick, physically unable to go in um, and he describes it as if someone was staging an intervention. He writes at the moment he became a follower of Jesus. I was at a concert at my son's music school We were in a hotel function room, full of children ready to play their instruments and proud parents ready to film them doing it. I was just walking to my chair when I was overcome entirely. Suddenly, I could see how everyone in the room was connected to everyone else, and I could see what was going on inside them and inside myself. I was overcome with a huge and inexplicable love, a great wave of empathy for everyone and everything. It kept coming and coming until I had to stagger out of the room and sit down in the corridor outside. Everything was unchanged, And everything was new. And I knew what had happened and who had done it. And I knew that it was too late. I'd just become a Christian. 
As he reflected on his own journey, he, uh, he writes how uh, culture shaped his view of freedom. He said that I grew up believing what all modern people are taught, that freedom meant lack of constraint. Orthodoxy taught, taught me that this freedom was no freedom at all, but enslavement to the passions. A neat description of the th first 30 years of my life. True freedom, it turns out, is not to give up your will and follow... Sorry, true freedom, it turns out, is to give up your will and follow God's, to deny yourself, to let it come. I am terrible at this, but at least now I understand the path. Holiness is the call to submit your will, to be obedient to Jesus. But this obedience isn't forced or authoritarian. It has, at its heart, a relationship. We're not called to obedience full stop. We're called to be obedient children. An obedient child trusts, and a loving parent protects and honors that trust. And to conform to your own desire, your own passion, your own will is inherently individualistic. It becomes about me, it becomes about the self. But to know your identity as a child, it places you within this relation, relational dynamic. It places you in a relationship. And if the fall and if sin was the breaking of relationships between us and God and with each other, then it's no wonder then that living this way, that holiness is part of the restoration of those relationships. We are his children and we are now a family. And what fuels this life of obedience and holiness is not to earn God's love or his failure, uh, favor. It's because of his love that we choose to be obedient. Pursuing a life of holiness isn't uh, a naive, small-minded way of living. It's not having a condescending or judgmental mindset that thinks you're better than everyone else. And for followers of Jesus, we face the same temptations as Israel and the early church that Peter is writing to, to assimilate to the message of the world, to live for self, give into your desire, and lose this call to be distinct, to live a life that reveals the glory of Jesus. My encouragement for us as we start this year is to see this call to live a holy life, not as something that is done begrudgingly, not as a following a list of empty moralistic rules, and definitely not to earn God's love, but to see it as a, as a way of living that at its core is to reflect and align with the creator and redeemer of the world. To see it as the most freeing, releasing, peace-giving, hope-inspired way of living. It is knowing that you are his and you are loved. It is living a life for the one who gave it all for you. And holiness doesn't actually end just purely personally. It doesn't end with uh, being something good for ourselves or a good way for us to live. It doesn't end by looking inwardly. It leads to action and it invites us to a mission. In Isaiah's vision, after the coal had touched his lips, God asks this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. A holy life always leads to a life of purpose to answer God's invitation. And whilst we do that, as Peter reminds us, we put our hope in the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus returns to make all things new. And I think that's super important for us today, that as we are bombarded daily on our phones with the turmoil of this world, as we process the injustice, the uncertainty of this moment, of our politics, of our planet, holiness invites us not to give in to fear or despair. But instead, instead, we set our minds on the hope we have in Jesus. We carry that hope around with us. It's a living, it's a life-filled hope that we get to embody in our world, in our city, in our workplaces. 
And we can do that because one day we know that he will wipe every tear, he will renew all things, and there one, one day will be no death, no crying. And through the story of our lives, we get to respond to God in the way Isaiah did. Here we are, send us. And I realize, as, as kind of Sarah said, that this year is often a year or often a time for new resolutions to new commitments, and often we can create, I guess, spiritual ones. And I guess my, my fear with this kind of talk or this, um, this moment for us in our own spiritual life is we can kind of set ourselves these big targets on how we want to live, how we want to read our Bibles more or share our faith or whatever it might be. And they are, they are obviously really, really good things. But one thing we've got to remember is that we do that out of response for God's love for us. We don't do it in order to earn his love or to earn his favor. I don't know about you, but when I fail, when I always fail my New Year's resolutions, you just feel guilty. You just don't you feel like you like yourself less because you can't kind of carry through what you've committed to. And I just encourage you, if you have made commitments in terms of your own spiritual life, if you have set goals, just remember you do it from a place of love. You do it because Jesus loves you and we are called to be set apart, set, to be distinct, to be obedient to who he is and we are his children. Um, and we carry this hope. We carry this hope that one day Jesus will return and restore all things. And um, I am very wary that it's so easy to be uh, living in despair and we talked this morning in our briefing about how so many of us are just really tired, um, feel like we haven't really rested, we feel like we're just done with this moment. Um, and I do feel like there is just opportunity and potential for us as a community to really live this distinct life. If last year was about getting this building ready, I know it's not ready yet, but go with me. What if this year was about getting our, our own inner lives ready? What if it was about getting ourselves to a place where God could really use us, where we can answer God's call to us, to say, we're here, use us. Um, so why don't you stand if Kenny and Belle come up. and I'm just going to pray for us, just pray, um, I guess, a, a commitment and, and a prayer of gratitude, really, to God that um, he loves us and that everything we do is a response to that. It's not in order to earn his love or his favor, but everything flows from our relationship with him. And that we get this amazing opportunity to model that he is the creator of the universe. We get to live this distinct, set-apart life. And that is just such a joy to be able to do. So exciting to be able to live in that way. So let's pray. You might want to put your hands out in front of you if you, uh, if you like uh, as a kind of posture to receive. God, we thank you so much that through your love for us, through your grace, we don't have to earn your love. We don't have to follow a set of rules in order to be good enough. God, we know we're not good enough. Well, thank you that because of your love, you have made us holy. You've called us holy. In the same way that Isaiah did nothing to earn or deserve that, that moment in that vision, Lord, in the same way we have done nothing to earn your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness to us. And Lord, I just pray for all of us that everything we do, everything we set our mind to, everything we, every goal that we set, every decision that we make, we would know that we are completely loved, that our identity is as children of you. Lord, I pray that this year as we face just the normal things of life, as we face interactions, disappointments, successes, 
decisions we need to make, God, I pray that we would make them from a place of knowing that we are your children and we are called, asked, invited to be obedient to you. God, I just thank you so much that through Jesus we can carry this hope. We can experience what he talks about in Matthew where he says that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. That for whoever wants to save their life, focus on the self, follow their will, desire, their own passions, they will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. God, we just thank you so much that you call us not to live a life for the self, for ourselves, an inward, small way of living, God, but you, you invite us to open our eyes, to lift up our heads, to know that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that you are calling us to become something bigger than who we are right now. And Jesus, I pray that we would be able to carry your presence with us in every facet of our lives this year, Lord God. Yeah, would you do good things through us, Lord Jesus, we ask. Would you do good things through this community, this family that we are building here. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to christchurchlondon.org.